This is Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. Now, we're not the oldest publishing podcast. That honor goes to Joanna Pan. But for a marketing-focused podcast, I believe we're the oldest. I'm Thomas Sumstadt Jr., but you can call me Mr. Umstadt. I'm James L. Rubart, but my friends call me Jim, and that, of course, is you. And in this episode, we're going to talk to you guys about how to become an excellent speaker. Uh, Thomas and I were talking the other day and we realized that we often mention that speaking is one of the best ways to sell more books. For example, when I keynote at a conference, I sell between 30 and 60% more books when I'm the keynoter. Uh, So we're going to talk about how you can use this power, how you can use the dynamic of speaking um, to sell more books. And so we really haven't, we've told you it's a good idea, but we haven't ever really said, all right, now here's how you do it. And so, and as we were putting this episode together and Thomas and I were kind of brainstorming on it, we realized it's not a subject that can be captured in one episode. (laughs) It it will take multiple episodes. So this is the first in a series of episodes on speaking and wait before you say, okay, I'm gone. I'm never going to be a speaker. That's not me. This episode does not relate to me. Hang on just a second. We just want to say if you're painfully shy and introverted, you can still be a wonderful speaker. I got my start out of college. My degree was in broadcast journalism. And so I got my start uh, on air at a radio station. And what I learned is the majority of those people on the air that you've probably listened to all your life, they are shy, introverted people. And you get them out of the studio, off the microphone, and you meet them in real life. It's like, where'd that extroverted, you know, performing guy go or gal go? They're shy, they're introverted, and yet they are able, when they open that mic, to be somebody that captures people's attention and tells story and is engaging. And so what I'm saying is, if that's you, if you're going, yeah, I, boy, I, I'm, I'm just shy, I don't want to do it, you can do it. It can happen for you. Actors are the same way, where you see these people on screen and then you meet them in real life. And I've had the chance to meet a number of actors. For the most part, they're shy. They, they are not the person you see on the screen. So... I guess I want to say you're not alone. And if you're someone saying, I am too introverted to be a speaker, I'd say uh, I probably have to respectfully disagree with you. Yeah. Introverts actually are the best speakers as well. Some of the most famous, best paid keynote presenters are introverted. doesn't mean you can't be successful as an extrovert, but it definitely helps uh, to be introverted. You would be surprised. And I also want to say no one is born good at speaking. What? It's not natural? It's not natural. My eight-month-old daughter is delightful. She's cute. And she is terrible at speaking. She has (laughs) one word that she says, and she doesn't even know what it means. So she says, ma, 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 which is not the word that she says referring to my wife, her mother. It is the word that she says when she is hungry. So she, she doesn't understand speaking yet. And this is how you were as well. The art of speaking, whether it's learning how to put words together or it's presenting a speech in front of a crowd, is a learned skill. No one is born good at it, and anyone can learn how to do it better. And that's what we're going to teach you in this episode. So let's let's just hit it. Let's hit some of these bullet points, Thomas. Um, I guess the first one is, and this kind of piggybacks on what we're saying, is nervousness is is normal. Um, I spoke last month at the uh, NC NCWA renewal conference in the Seattle area, and somebody came up to me right before my second keynote and, and said, "Well, hey, Jim, are, are you nervous?" It's like, yeah, I've given hundreds and hundreds of speeches and I'm still nervous every single time before I go on. And that's a good thing. As, as the anecdote says, it's really difficult to make music on the guitar if there's no tension on the strings. And so that tension, that nervousness 
that's what's going to help you make great music. Pro athletes say, boy, if, you know, if I'm not nervous before I go out onto the field and that first rush before that first, say, football, uh, that first tackle, they're still nervous. And so nervousness is okay. That's part of the game. So if you say, oh, I'd, I'd just be too nervous to speak. Nah, you're, you're right there with the rest of us. Yeah, I found that I do not do my best work when I'm not nervous. And sometimes I've given a talk so many times that I'm not nervous and it hurts the performance of that talk. Because one of the keys of being good at speaking is energy. You have to be energetic on stage and nervous energy is a really great source of that energy. Now, nervousness can conquer you, right? So it, nervousness is not always good. It can be bad. And you may be like, well, how do I use my nervous energy to make me better? How do I get the butterflies in my stomach to fly in formation? And the answer is practice. <laughs> really, that, so the more I practice, the less nervous I get and the more I'm able to control my nerves. And um, often I find that the um, nerves are only in those very first minutes. So it's often in the walking up to the podium. Once I get started, if I'm suitably practiced, I'm not nervous uh, anymore once I you know start the speech. And another thing I keep remembering, reminding myself, something I heard in some speaking training once you one time, you appear 10% as nervous as you really are. So you almost never notice somebody being nervous on stage because all of the, most of that is internal to yourself. Even if your hands are shaking, often that's so subtle, somebody in the audience can't see your hand shaking. Sometimes there are things, you know, if your voice starts shaking, they'll notice that. Or if you say to everyone in the crowd, I'm really nervous, which by the way, don't ever say that because if you don't tell them that, they won't know. <laughs> but just remember, your nervousness is mostly hidden from the audience. And if you've spoken in the past and you say, boy, I was just so bad and you've never gone back and listened to it, you would surprise yourself. When I was first on the air at a radio station, we did air checks. So we would, uh, it's just, you'd press a button and it would record every time you open the mic to speak. So you'd filter all the music out and then you'd go back and listen to yourself. And I was amazed the first few times I listened to myself and I thought, oh my gosh, I wasn't half, I wasn't as bad as I thought I was because a lot of the mistakes and things that I thought I did all happened in my head and it never actually got out on the air. And so if you haven't had the chance to record yourself, uh, which is something you need to do anyway to improve, uh, do that and then listen back. You might surprise yourself. And this can be as simple as just taking your smartphone and hitting record, getting an app that records and putting it on a table while you're speaking. Right? This doesn't have to be a high quality recording if you're just using it for your own improvement and as a way of, of practicing. And another thing to remember is that it's not about you when you're presenting. It's about your audience. And this is one thing to help you feel less nervous, right? Because part of the quote unquote mistakes, you're comparing what you did with what you wanted to do and how it wasn't as good. But the audience doesn't know what you wanted to do. They didn't know how it sounded in your head. They only heard the joke as you said it. And if they laughed, it was funny for them. Even if it wasn't as funny as it could have been, it was still funny. But also, if you have this attitude of service, it helps you kind of get over yourself and not take yourself so, too seriously and be like, the purpose of me being on stage is to be a blessing to the audience, to entertain them, to inform them, to encourage them, whatever it is that fits with your brand, right? If, you, if your brand is a very serious, sober, you know, educational brand, then that's what you lean into. And you have a very serious, sober, educational presenting style, if that's what your audience, want, audience wants. Or if your brand is, you know, funny, happy-go-lucky, I make everyone laugh all the time, then that's what you do on stage. And you're a blessing to your audience, and it's about making their lives better. And if you do that, you have succeeded. You're done. That's it. You don't have to be super polished or super fancy. You just have to be a blessing to your audience. 
Yeah, I like that, Thomas. And that kind of goes along with our next point. And that is, and some people will disagree, maybe even you, Thomas, but my opinion is if you need note cards, you're not ready to give the talk. And so many times I've seen people get up there and note cards and they're looking down at the note cards and they're reading from it. And then they look back up at you and they look down at the note cards. I would rather have somebody just go, you know what? Um, I'm just going to wing it. I, I have the basic ideas in my head. And, and so think concepts, think content, think stories, not memorization. And, and when people are starting out, they think they have to memorize this speech. And I've seen people go along and it's like, boy, okay, this memorization's working, working, working. And then they forget and they're so thrown off by it. Either they stop and they're befuddled or they go back to the notes and they're scrambling through the notes to find out. People want authenticity. People want a blessing. Like Thomas said, they want a real person up there speaking to them. And when you're reading off a of note cards, uh, it, it's not authentic anymore. It's it's a report that you're giving them. And I'm not saying you can't have, you know, I, I like slide decks when I when I speak. Um, and so in a sense, those are note cards that keep me on track, but it, it, but I use pictures. I I don't use words up there, um, to, to keep myself on track. So, so I'm not opposed to somebody saying, you know, say you have a stack, Thomas, of three, five note cards, and it's just a couple of headline bullets that keep you on, on point. I'm not saying you don't have that. I'm just saying, don't get up there and read your talk from note cards. Yeah, I will say I always have notes in front of me when I present. I even though I was the state champion sh- champion in impromptu speaking my senior year, so I, I did competitive speech and debate, and I came number one in the state of Texas for impromptu speaking. Even then, I had note cards. So in impromptu speaking, I think you, I, I don't remember what the rules were back then. We had thirty seconds or two minutes to think. They give us a topic, and then we have a, a few seconds to think. And I would jot down notes, but it, I wasn't writing out word for word. It was just here are the main points I want to hit. Here's the concept or the main. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because because if I get off on a tangent and I need to bring it back, I want to know kind of where I'm bringing it back to. But in general, the um, you don't want to present something written out and, and especially don't use note cards for that. If you're giving an academic lecture, you're presenting an essay and you need to read it. That's okay. But that's not generally, unless you're an academic writer, that's not the style of speaking that would be the best for selling books. People want a more entertaining, more conversational style, which means uh, more um, expository, more extemporaneous, where you're looking at the audience and talking to the audience and you're reacting with the audience and if uh, and here's a really great pro tip if the audience looks bored move on to the next topic <laughs> or the next point in your talk just end a little bit you know pick up the pace go on to the next thing and um then often moving to that next topic will get them re-engaged and if they're still not engaged just move through your material really quickly and then get off the stage no one's going to complain that you talked for too short uh <laughs> only that you talked for too long so keep an eye on the audience let them gauge how long you go Next comment is about slide decks. Yay or nay? By slide decks, Thomas and I mean um, a keynote uh, if you're a Mac user or PowerPoint if you're a PC user where you have your presentation and you go through these slides that are up on screen. I'm a big fan of slide decks if they're used correctly. And it, it drives me nuts when I see essentially it's <laughs> what I really don't like because graphically this this is not good. Uh, for keep, keeping people's attentions, but when it's um, black background and white lettering, and essentially they're going through these slides, and it's just it's just typed out words, and that's their slide deck. It, it, don't do that. 
that that's not helping your cause because essentially you're looking up there and you're reading your presentation to them. That that's not the way to use slide decks. Thomas, how do you use slide decks? I put white text on a black background <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> um, but it's only a word or two. Not a long sentence. It's not a paragraph. Maybe not it's, sentences. Yeah. Definitely not paragraphs. So the purpose of an outline, uh, your bullet points, is for your own private use. It's your underwear. It's good to have it but it's not for other people to see. And when you put your bullet points up on a PowerPoint, it's like standing in front of everyone with your underwear showing. It's, that's not good. That, that's not good form. Uh, what The easiest, the, if you only do one thing with slides, if, you, if you're going to use them, and often talks are better without slides than they are with slides. And that that's some sound effects right there. I don't know if y'all can hear that thunder, but there's a thunderstorm going thunder? on right now. Wow. In Austin. Yeah, that, that was that thunder. So this is this is the it has the weight of nature behind it, <laughs> what I'm about to say. So and here here is the principle. One idea per slide. So a a list of bullets violates that principle of one idea per slide because each bullet is its own idea. So if all you do is take each one of those bullet points and give them their own slide, your presentation will get better. Because then when you have only one idea per slide, you have all this empty space on the slide and you start asking the question, what image could I use here that would help make this one idea make more sense? And if that one idea is hard to find an image for, it may be too vague and you need to make that idea better. And the act of looking for an image for that one idea actually makes the idea itself better. And, and, you, it, the, and some people are like, oh, but you know, people want to print off my talk. Create a separate document in a different program called Microsoft Word that's really good for creating documents. You can put <laughs> a whole outline there <laughs> or that, that has links and is specifically designed to be a handout. Hand it out after you speak. So if you give it to people while you're speaking, they'll stop listening to you. It'll kill the dramatic tension. It's like telling people the ending of the book before you get started. Uh, and they're just reading the book and then they're on their phones. But when you're done, if people want some notes, give them that separate document that you created. And if you do those two things, one idea per slide and then an image to help explain the idea and then keep your document and your presentation separate. Those three things uh, will really help your presentations be better if you use slides. If that seems intimidating to you, don't use slides. It makes your life way easier. <laughs> Just get up there and tell some stories and uh, people will love you. And uh, You don't have to use slides. Uh, I use a lot of slides when I present, but it's because I'm talking about technical topics. And it's often nice to be able to say, here is what it looks like and put a screenshot up there on the screen and use images to make those concrete things uh, more um or those abstract things more concrete. But for a lot of authors who are just telling stories, the slides really hurt. And there's some science that actually shows that if you read people a slide, they have lower retention than if they had read it themselves silently or if you had read it to them and they hadn't read it as well. You reading it with them hurts the retention. And I really wish that some of my college professors come across <laughs> that study. That I had several professors, that's, that what they, that's what they did every class. They would just load up the, the PowerPoint that came with the textbook and read it to us. And it was awful. It was like, why, anyone could do this. You're not like, anyway, rant over. Let's move on to the next point. <laughs> Good rant. I like the rant. Um, your words are important. When you're speaking, your words are important just as important is your personality. And let me illustrate this. Think back to the last five talks you've heard. Do you remember the words that were spoken or do you remember the person? And a lot of times it's like, yeah, I don't really remember exactly what she said, but wow, I really liked her. 
She was really authentic. She was really genuine. And so when you're speaking, your personality and that vulnerable, authentic person coming through is critical because people are human lie detectors. They can smell BS a mile away, right? Um, and, and so use that vulnerability. Use your passion as well to make yourself memorable. I was at a writing conference. This was a couple of summers ago and Frank Peretti was teaching. And it really struck me because 90% of the teaching he was giving, I, I already knew. I was familiar with the concepts. And there's 10% that, that I was learning that was new. And yet, I still absolutely loved the lecture because of Frank's passion. And he was animated and he was telling stories and he used his voice in a way that just drew me in. And so, Thomas talked a little earlier about energy being such a big component of speaking. Oh my gosh, Frank had energy in spades. And I was drawn in because of that. So do not be afraid to be authentic. Do not be afraid to be vulnerable and do not be afraid to let your passion show. That's really good. Um, because and and here's, what's great. You're already yourself. <laughs> be <laughs> the name brand version of you, not a knockoff version of somebody else. And, and speaking in many ways is just letting people see the name brand version of who you are. And part of this is getting to know who you are, and that's a process. Uh, but I suspect you already have a good idea. Don't feel like you have to become James L. Rubard or Frank Peretti and you have to copy somebody else's style. Uh, as you do this more and more, you'll develop your own style. And you'll find that there are different people who present in different ways uh, that work for them. And the reason why they work is because they're presenting in ways that are true to who they are. Thomas, earlier you said, get up there and tell stories. And I think you're absolutely right. I read this the other day and I thought it was Seth Godin, but I, I tried to find the quote and I couldn't. But I read somewhere, someone said, you want to have a great speech? Real easy. Introduce yourself, tell 10 stories, say goodbye. <laughs> and, it, <'cause, laughs> and I thought, wow, that's, that's really brilliant because people remember stories. They remember uh, fiction more than they do nonfiction. So anecdotes and stories. And again, think back to the last three or four speeches you've heard that have made an impact on you. My guess is you're going to remember the stories that were told, not the statistics. When I present, I have two different styles of presentations that I do. One is a kind of keynote style presentation that's more inspirational and energizing. And the other is a workshop style presentation, which is more educational and informative. And one of the major things that shifts on that continuum is the number of stories to the number of points, right? If I'm teaching a talk on, let's say, search engine optimization, right, that's a technical topic. And really, the value is not in the stories. It's in the content that I'm presenting. But even more than that, it's in the Q&A at the end where people are reacting to what I've been teaching and they're asking questions about their specific website and how to make it rank better on Google. I have another talk that I give uh, that's on, you know, marketing in general, kind of like the psychology of marketing and uh, online, you know, selling yourself online. And I open with the story of the three little pigs. <laughs> and it's one of my most popular talks. It's a and great talk. <laughs> I can see the tension in the room reducing when I tell the story of the three little pigs. Because sometimes people who haven't heard me speak before are nervous because the topic scares them. Marketing scares them. Technology scares them. I'm often walking into a room with, a, with an intimidating topic. And one of the goals, at least in my first story, is to put people at ease and be like, I am not going to 
blast you with jargon that you don't understand. I'm going to make this very easy to understand. Uh, but telling good stories is really key. And, and this takes practice to tell a good story, but I can give you one tip. Don't give away the end at the beginning. <laughs> the key to a good story is dramatic tension. So don't open your speech with a summary. Don't open a story with how it's going to end. You want people to never know how it's going to end until it ends. That sense of uncertainty, that sense of expectation is really, really powerful. Sometimes I'll start a speech and I'll, you know, um, plant a question in people's minds and make them really curious about something. Be like, and I'll answer this at the end. And uh, sometimes we'll get to the end of the talk if I'm running late. I know I only have time for one question. If I didn't get to that thing, I was going to tell them somebody will raise their hand and be like, what was that thing? Uh, Because that uh, open loop, that curiosity is very powerful. And you've got to use your audience's uh, curiosity as your ally. Because you're there for a reason. You're on the stage for a reason. And that people want to hear from you. That's why they're sitting in the audience. Yeah, that's good, Thomas. Another tip is how to look at people. Oftentimes when people start speaking, they'll look at the crowd and they know that they're not just supposed to, you know, fix it on one spot. So they kind of look around, but they end up looking at the tops of people's heads. And just one tip is to look down just slightly. So you actually make eye contact with people and you're not keeping that eye contact going for two or three seconds. It's just, it's just a quick little look. But when you look into their eyes and then you move on to somebody else and look into their eyes for a few seconds sorry, not a few seconds, but a a few milliseconds, and then move on, they feel like, oh my gosh, she was talking right to me. This was so cool. She was actually saying this right to me. And and so people in the audience feel very connected to you. Now, you don't make it a goal of, I'm going to look in the eyes of everybody, every single person in the audience. But as you're looking around, and you don't have to be doing this all the time either, but from time to time, you do want to make that type of, uh, of audience connection again, because they are going to feel very connected emotionally to you. It feels very personal, very one-on-one, and they're going to feel great about the talk because you singled them out. And they're giving you information about their emotional state. As you look into their eyes, you're able to read them. Uh, At least most people are able to read others as they look into their eyes. They get a sense of how they're feeling. If they're bored, if they're excited, if they're curious, if they're confused, all of those uh, states that somebody can be in uh, informs you as the speaker Right. If everyone is looking confused, (laughs) you need to stop and and try to figure out where they're confused, because if you're teaching seven points and you're on point three and everyone's confused, moving to uh, point four is not the next. Right. Right. If they're confused at point three, they're going to be more confused at point four. Whereas if everyone's looking bored and you're on point three, you need to get to point four as quick as possible. Maybe skip a few slides or skip a few points in your notes. if Everyone already knows what you're teaching. And that's why um, looking at your audience. And I realize this is intimidating and don't feel like you have to do this your first time. So it is a learned skill, but looking at your audience creates that emotional connection. That's not just beneficial for them feeling connected with you, but it's also beneficial for you feeling connected with them. That's so good. Um, Next thing is to think about the way you start your talk. We know that we're supposed to start our books. That first sentence needs to have a hook in it. But we don't think often about how the first sentence of our talk has to have a hook in it. And Thomas just gave an example. His hook is, I mean, how many people are starting off a a talk with the three little pigs? It's brilliant, right? You're just, you're already kind of smiling. You're going, where is he going with this? This is surprising. This is delightful. One of the things I do is, since I used to be a semi-pro magician, I will often start off one of my talks with a magic trick 
Wait, nobody's expecting that, right? So it gets their attention. It gets them laughing. It loosens them up. It gets them very focused on what I'm going to say next. So our question to you is, what is your hook? What is your distinguishing uh, mode of first engaging with that audience? And while we talked earlier about not memorizing your speech, which is good, right? You don't want to just drone on for 30 minutes from a memorized speech. It can be a good idea to have the first minute or two, your initial bang out of the gate memorized. Uh, because one, if you're nervous, you know, you're going to have a really strong first two minutes. It allows you to have a really efficient two minutes. And then you kind of go into the improvisation after that. This is how chess is done, right? Uh, Typically, chess masters have the first two or three moves memorized. Uh, this is how football is played, right? When you get the when a football team gets the football, the first several um, plays, at least in college football now, are pre-scripted. So they are, they know you know the first six plays are going to be these plays, and we're going to go bang, bang, bang really fast through those plays. That opening drive is often uh, very powerful uh, for that in that way, and it, it can be the same for your speech. So whatever your unique hook is, that funny thing, that unexpected thing that you're doing. Have that memorized so that um, by the time you've gotten through, the thing you already know is good. You've relaxed. The audience is relaxed. You can move into the kind of moving in the grooving and the playing of the football, so to speak, where you're responding to what the other team is doing and you're responding to um, what the audience, what the questions that the audience is asking or the emotional states they're communicating to you uh, in their faces. Another tip is to get to know Ted. And by this, we mean Ted Talks. Thomas, you want to uh, explain that a little bit? Yeah, so TED, uh, I think it's TED.com. They have lots of really good uh, talks, uh, especially the best viewed ones. They're very unique uh, and they're very well delivered. And there are several books you can get on Amazon that break down kind of what makes TED Talks so good. They're typically 18 minutes long, which is a very difficult amount of time to speak for, actually. Because uh, it's long enough where there has to be some substance, but it's shorter than a typical like seminar. And uh, it's, a, it's a very challenging speaking format. And the people that they uh, get to present are often the best in the world. And they're very good. They're subject matter experts. And I highly recommend watching some TED Talks, sharing some with your friends. Um, there's, there's good ones. Uh, one thing to realize there's a big difference between Ted and TEDx. Ted, there are millions of TEDx like talks. I feel like there's TEDx events that happen in every town. Um, but an actual TED talk only happens once a year at the official TED event. And that's the best of the best. Uh, there's a lot of kind of mid grade speakers that'll do a TEDx talk. Some of them are really good too. There's some really excellent TEDx talks, but there's also some really terrible TEDx talks, but I've never seen a TED talk that wasn't well delivered. I've seen some I disagreed with, but I haven't seen any where I'm like, man, how'd that guy get in? Like they, they do a very good job vetting their speakers ahead of time at TED. Uh, next tip is attitudes are contagious. Are yours worth catching? I've loved this saying since I was in college and first saw it. What mean we, what we mean by that is the audience is going to pick up on your cues. If you're having a good time, they're going to pick up on that. If you're frustrated, they're going to pick up on that. They're going to follow your lead on that. So your attitude going in, even if you're feeling nervous, fake it, you know, have fun. Uh, and, and they will go along with you on that. Um, just a couple more thoughts and then we'll wrap up this episode. And that is your critique partners. There are three critique partners that we think can really help you. One is your friend, somebody else that wants to get into speaking and you critique each other's performance. Number two critique partner is your phone. 
and Thomas just Thomas talked about this a little bit earlier that you can record. Just put your phone down, get an app to record, and record your whole talk. We also encourage you to take your phone sometimes and stick it at the back of the room and record it visually. So not only are you hearing what uh, you, you've done, but you're seeing what you've done as well. One of the best ways to learn is to critique your own performance. Um, and then the audience, that's a great critique partner as well. And in some cases, you can get feedback, especially at writing conferences, you can get feedback uh, about how the talk was. And I always love getting those from conferences. And then finally, and, and I haven't, I, I haven't seen this talked about a lot, but Thomas intimated earlier that you should watch your audience for, for cues. Well, what if you taped your audience during the entire talk and you're going to get a really good feel for what stories resonated with people, obviously what jokes resonated with people, when people are getting bored, when I should cut that segment down and make it snappier, you'll get a tremendous amount of feedback by watching them watching you. And then finally practice <laughs> practice oh you have to practice this stuff yeah so like what jim's talking about he's assuming you're giving the same talk multiple times right if you're only speaking one time taping is not right. going to help you right you don't it's the taping and the feedback and viewing the audience all of that only helps you if you're going to give that talk a second time and the really best speakers often you're really impressed I'm like, gosh how does this talk so good it's like well this guy's given that talk 50 times and it's gotten to be really good, right? The first few times it was given, it wasn't uh, very good. And the, the principle here is to practice for free until you get busy. When, when you're too busy and you're like, oh, I'm speaking for free too much, then you raise your rates until you're happy and you use your price to determine how much speaking you do. But at the beginning, you're going to have to practice for free. And I will say, when I'm developing a brand new talk, I will often uh, deliver it for free to a live audience before I take it on the road, so to speak. And I learned this from uh, Liz Curtis Higgs, who's a very successful speaker. I think she speaks to 100,000 people every year. And uh, I, I sat down with her at a writer's conference. We were at breakfast and I just grilled her with questions. I had a notepad and I was like, what do you do? Like, how do you approach your um, public speaking? And one of the things she does is she has like a test audience that she'll do her talks on first to, and she does these sorts of things that Jim was talking about recording it and measuring the audience, that sort of thing. And then she takes it on the road. Cause she's like, I owe my audiences a polished talk. And it's not fair to that first audience to be practicing on them. And I've started doing this. I'll do a pay what you want event at my house for authors in the Austin area. Um, just to, you know, and it's only, you know, five or six people sometimes it's not very big, but it's big enough where I, where I can get an idea of what works and what doesn't. And, uh, then when I make a course or I start taking it on the road, the talk is, is more prepared, but the key is to be willing to speak for free. You're not doing yourself any favors. If when you're first getting started, you're like, I'm not going to touch a microphone unless I'm getting paid a thousand dollars. And it's like, well, you got to earn being paid a thousand dollars for giving a speech and you're not going to get there without practicing first. Yeah. Uh, as Thomas and I said, we're going to, this is going to be a series of talks. So this is the first one on speaking, but if you want some more material right now, we do have an episode, how to get your first speaking gigs. And what episode is that, Thomas? Is that one? That's episode 178. And we're not going to do these episodes back to back. So don't worry if you're like, oh, I don't want to hear more about speaking. We're going to do other topics next, but this is, we're working uh, for the next kind of season of novel marketing. We're going to be hitting the topic of public speaking more frequently because it really is so powerful. And part of the reason why it's powerful 
is that emotional connection is so great. But also, you're selling your book at full price and you're cutting out the middleman. <laughs> Even if you're traditionally published, you're making more money per copy when you sell in person than in any other context. So it really is valuable for connecting with readers. It's valuable for making money. And it's valuable for making a difference in the world because that emotional connection is ultimately what leads to change. So public speaking, highly recommended. Authors have been doing it since Mark Twain <laughs> dazzled audiences around the world in 1878. <laughs> oh, I love it. So, Thomas, who is our featured patron this week? Our featured patron is the book NOLA by uh, Molly Jo Reilly. Uh, this is Molly Jo's debut novel just released. So congratulations to Molly Jo. Uh, her tagline is, the past never stays buried. And uh, thank you, Molly, for being a supporter of the Novel Marketing Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Molly Jo, we have a link to her website and her book in the show notes. And uh, if you would like to become a patron, our patrons don't just get featured from time to time on the show, but they also get an exclusive patron only episode every month, as well as incredible discounts as high as 50% on our training and our courses and first access to the cool new things that we have coming out. And our sponsor today is the Rubart <laughs> Writing Academy. James L. Rubart, would you happen to know anything about that? I, I do know a few things about that. So the Rubart Writing Academy is a four-day live event with me and with my son, Taylor. And Thomas, this has honestly turned into something that has grown beyond what Taylor and I thought it would be. We have student after student after student say, oh my gosh, I would have paid twice as much. I would have paid three times as much to, to, to come to this event. And it, it's really intimate. We always do it at home. It's a very limited number of students. We do one-on-one -on -one time with me. We do one-on-one -on -one time with Taylor. And it really is a chance to launch your career um, as it's never been launched before. Because we go through marketing and branding. We go through the business side of publishing. We go through motivation and inspiration. We go through craft. And then finally, we go through what we think is the biggest uh, part of the, uh, of the academy, and that is helping people discover what the theme of their life is. And so would love to have you come. We have two coming up. One is October 10th through the 13th. That's in the Seattle area. And then we just announced this. We have another one, October 31st through November 3rd in Colorado Springs. And you can go to rubartwritingacademy.com and get all the info. And uh, I highly recommend uh, the Rubart Writing Academy. People uh, rave about those. Um, they're not cheap, but they are well worth uh, the money. This has been James L. Rubart and Thomas Umstead Jr. on the Novel Marketing Podcast, giving you innovative ideas on how to promote yourself and your writing offline, online, and everywhere in between. Thank you so much for listening.